Good evening and welcome to The Fred Paul Show on ADH-TV. Well, like all modern tertiary educational institutions, Monash University in Melbourne produces slick videos like this to get a slice of the lucrative foreign student market. It shows an idyllic life for students as they go shopping, soak up some rays, socialize with other students, visit art galleries, play outdoor basketball, drive around the suburbs, and maybe one day after graduation, settle down and raise a family. It all looks rather perfect, wouldn't you say? But as any regular viewer of ADH-TV knows, this is only part of the story about our education system. What they don't include is this bit. Only the disciplined mind can see reality, Winston. It needs an act of self-destruction, an effort of the will. That is, of course, the famous penultimate scene from the film version of 1984, the George Orwell novel that predicted liberal societies would one day torture people into denying reality, which is kind of what's happening at Australian universities today, albeit without the torture rack. Monash is by no means alone in this, but I've singled it out because it is the latest to be exposed for forcing ideas ideas that would generously be described as irrational, onto its students. The Herald Sun reports today that a Monash University, sorry, Monash engineering student complained about being told to include an acknowledgement of the traditional owners of country in an assignment or be docked marks. The student told the newspaper he understood the need to help Indigenous Australians, but that, quote, including an acknowledgement of country in a written assignment that is only going to be seen by one examiner does nothing in the way of improving the lives of Indigenous people. Well, hats off to that student who is clearly smarter than all of the tutors and lecturers teaching him. An acknowledgement of country is meant to show respect to the traditional owners of the land on which you find yourself. Trouble is, those owners don't exist. They arguably didn't exist even before Melbourne was settled by whites in 1835. The only inhabitants of the Australian continent before white settlement were nomadic tribes of hunter-gatherers who often exercised territoriality but didn't have any concept of land ownership at least not in the way we define it. Kinship, perhaps, but ownership? Not really. And if there ever was an inherited Indigenous entitlement to the land in and around Melbourne or any Australian city, it was extinguished long ago by the concept of freehold title on which this nation was built. The woke boffin in the engineering department at Monash University who wrote the above assignment could have found this out if he wandered across campus to the law faculty. Then again, you can't be sure that even the law department hasn't also scurried down the same fashionable rabbit hole of wokeness, abandoning centuries of accumulated knowledge about property rights in the process. 
Monash University has withdrawn the order to acknowledge country in assignments in this instance. But you can be assured that this does not mean the university dons have learned a lesson from this. Which brings me back to 1984. Do you remember writing in your diary, freedom is the freedom to say two plus two equals four? Yes. How many fingers am I holding up, Winston? The correct answer is, of course, four. Winston is eventually forced to not only say the answer is five, but believe it. Where Orwell got it wrong was that there are subtler ways of making people deny reality. Torture's a bit gauche, you see, and not very intellectually challenging, especially for university boffins. The British edition of The Spectator magazine reports that there is now pressure for universities to teach a, quote, decolonized version of mathematics. King's College mathematician John Armstrong says this pressure is coming from people who think that Europeans, as well as colonizing the world geographically, colonized thought as well. Or to put it another way, they created a, quote, European paradigm of rational knowledge, unquote. Well, there are two things to say about this. Firstly, Europeans have never claimed a monopoly on rational knowledge. As Armstrong says, quote, there is nothing particularly European about rational knowledge. Maths has always been an astonishingly international pursuit. And second, even if rational thought was solely European, it would still not degenerate into dogma. It was curiosity, not the desire to colonize, that drove Europeans to explore the world in the first place. That curiosity remains central to our culture. Although not, although not so much in our education system, which is more focused on forcing students to accept a dreary interpretation of our history as nothing but oppression of noble savagery, bulldozing sacred sites to build Westfield shopping centres and shoving plastic straws up the noses of turtles. Teaching this rubbish at tertiary level is bad enough, but at least students in their late teens and early 20s can, with a bit of resolve, resist the indoctrination. But at primary school level, it goes beyond cynical into the realm of sinister. Today, the Spectator Australia website published a piece by an anonymous 13-year-old student describing the heartbreakingly racist way some of her peers are being taught to see others. Alexandra Marshall, who you'll know as a regular guest on this show, also edits that website and she confirmed to me the letter was authentic, even if it had been lightly edited by her mother. So the letter says, quote, when I was younger, teachers guilted me because of my skin color, making me think it was my fault that half-blooded Aboriginals were taken from their families. I cried and felt ashamed to be who I am. This year, when I entered year seven, I met this girl whose grandmother is half Aboriginal and looked similar to me. She called me European and excluded me by saying hurtful comments about European people followed by, no offense, I felt hurt. Why are these divisions encouraged at every level of our education system? 
Well, they are encouraged because that's what Marxists do. They pretend they're breaking down centuries of oppressive hierarchies in order, in order to create more equal ones. You don't, have to be, you don't have to study history at university to know where that leads to. Well, one of the most dire warnings made at the beginning of the lockdown in 2020 was that our economy was not like a computer that you can switch off and then switch back on. We're seeing this now in a variety of ways, not least of which is that a generation of kids who spent the better part of two years being told to stay home instead of go to work are now not so keen to go out and get a job. Other problems include supply chain issues and the high price of tradies now that the building industry is back up and running. But the same applies to a whole society. Melbourne is a good example where they had the longest lockdowns in the world. The Herald Sun newspaper reports today that a third of Victorians think Melbourne is less attractive now than it was before the lockdowns. And it's true, there's a lot of troubled people on the streets of Melbourne CD, CBD these days. And the city is also more difficult to navigate now that so many of its streets are choked with bike lanes. Let's bring in Gideon Rosner of the Institute of Public Affairs and a man who I know loves the great city of Melbourne more than most to talk about it. Gideon, welcome. G'day, Fred. Yeah, look, I've always said, uh, you know, when people ask me about Melbourne, I, or at least to, I used to pre-corona, uh, you know, with Melbourne, the lifestyle is unbeatable, but the politics is lousy. And now, unfortunately, only one of those things is true. <laughs> well, tell me about the lifestyle. Has it changed? Look, it has. And the thing is, for those of us who lived in Melbourne throughout the lockdowns, who've lived in Melbourne our whole lives as I had, uh, you almost are tricked into believing that the city is back to normal at this stage. Uh, but people who come from interstate, friends of mine, people who come from Sydney or wherever else will come here and say, oh, my God, this is the first time I've been here since it happened. It is lousy here. The city is not the same. People look shell-shocked. And i, I got to say, I can see why. I mean, I lived on Spencer Street right in the middle of the CBD throughout those lockdown days, and I saw in real time the soul of a city being ripped out. As they say about recessions or anything else, uh, it goes up, or the economy, it goes up by the stairs and it comes down by the elevator. You can't just snap your fingers and give out a few lunch vouchers and expect uh, to, to have what was destroyed restored in just a few months. It doesn't work that way uh, because a lot of those businesses that close, they are never, ever, ever coming back. And you know what? I don't blame them. I yeah. don't blame them. Well, I've got to, I want to get you to elaborate on how it manifests. So for, firstly, you've got shutters up on shop windows where businesses mm. were thriving. How else has Melbourne changed just on the streets? Well, again, as you say, I mean, the, the war on cars, as I call it, is not a new phenomenon, but it's certainly intensified in the last little while. And this is the problem. You know, it was state politicians in state government that broke Melbourne and the Melbourne CBD. And unfortunately, it's fallen to politicians in uh, City Hall, local politicians like the Bra that Brains Trust, Sally Cap and the rest of them, to work out a way uh, to fix it. And they've come up with all manner of stupid ideas, you know, closed streets for Italian-style piazzas, you know, 
build more bike lanes and so on. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. All bike lanes do on a net basis is inconvenience the majority of people who actually do drive to the city. Uh, bike lanes are great if you live in Brunswick and drink your kombucha and jump on your bike and go into the city every day, uh, 15 minutes from your house. But if you live in Eaglemont or Cockatoo or wherever else, there's only one way of getting into the city and that's via a car either going all the way in or at best parking and riding in. Uh, the fact of the matter is I lived in the city. I love living in the city, but the city is not just for people who live there or near there. It is for everyone. It is for all Melbournians and all Victorians. It is a or was a glittering jewel in the Victorian landscape and it should, should not be choked off uh, by these stupid bike lanes. Yeah, well, that's one of the sort of um, fundamental problems of the way our cities are run. They're run by the city councils. As you say, mm. the city belongs to everyone, even in the outer suburbs, but they don't get a say on these bike lanes, do they? Uh, well, if they get a say, then, you know, <laughs> I don't think anybody listens. I don't think anybody pays attention. You get the same outcome anyway. Uh, in my local government area, they've closed off a major arterial road for a pop-up park uh, that nobody wanted, nobody asks for. Asked for. They invited community consultations. My wife wrote the, the scathing letter of a lifetime. It did me very, very proud. I must say my influence seems to have rubbed off on her in the short <laughs> 10 months we've been married. Uh, but lo and behold, of course, the, uh, the, the pop-up park was approved and now people who need to get through this Street. I obviously can't get there for a bit of astroturf and some park benches or something. That's the way local council goes. I don't think it's even the elected council members who are making these decisions. Is the overpaid uh, council bureaucrats with nothing better to do but to think about ways to inconvenience people. It's the same problem that exists at all levels of government. We are not run by elected officials. We're run by we're run by bureaucrats, aren't we? That's right. That's right. It's what I call the stakeholderocracy. You've got uh, politicians who don't listen to the people. They listen to the people with the lanyards on, the people who go to Parliament House to ask for all manner of favours and tax breaks and subsidies. Uh, generally, uh, as I've often said in relation to the federal election when we discussed it, uh, there's one political party in Australia. It's called the Canberra Party. I don't, you know, it doesn't seem to matter whether it's the red team or the blue team uh, in the seat of power. Uh, we seem to get the same results anyway. Well, just getting back to the CBD, the government seems very keen to open a second drug injection room in the city. These drugs, now this is the interesting thing, Gideon, these drugs are illegal, yet the government is encouraging their injection. Ironically, this is the same government whose police force shot unarmed protesters on the streets with rubber bullets for the crime of peacefully protesting. It's a bit inconsistent, isn't it? Look, what gets me about these injecting centres is they will build a government-run facility for you to go and shoot up, yet if you light up a cigarette in there, they'll throw the book at you. So that's the first inconsistency. Look, um, you know, I'm, I'm not a tough-on-drugs guy, Fred. I'm a libertarian. I think we should look at things like, for example, the Portugal model, uh, where they decriminalised everything and diverted people to treatment. I don't like injecting rooms, however. I think they're a half-pregnant solution at best. Uh, proponents say they save a few lives. You know, maybe they do and maybe they don't. We can't discount that. But fundamentally, the biggest problem with them is where do you put them? They're inherently unfair on anybody who happens to live next to them because nobody wants a smack house next door to them. That is the fundamental fact. People in Richmond have been tearing their hair out at the facility there for years. Uh, as I said, Victoria is on its, uh, the Melbourne CBD is on its knees right now. Nobody is coming back. The businesses are shut forever. The last thing it needs, the last thing it needs is a, 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 a carpet of syringes all along Flinders Street. Uh, but that's what we're heading to with these tone deaf politicians in charge. Or, or an influx of junkies instead of tourists. Well, 
That, that's right. Look, they say, you know, we need to bring people back to the CBD. I don't think those are the kind of people we need back here. But uh, look, who knows? I don't know what's uh, uh, on the mirror of Melbourne's mind right now and what, what's on the state government's mind. Well, maybe, staying, that, maybe that is the kind of people. Well, <laughs> maybe they vote Labor. Who knows? Staying in Melbourne, though, <laughs> it looks like Novak Djokovic will be allowed to play in the Australian Open this summer. He was deported last year, of course. Great cheers. And told to stay out for three years because he wouldn't disclose his vaccination status. The then Prime Minister, Scott, Mer- uh, Scott Morrison, said, quote, Australians mm. have made many sacrifices during this pandemic and they rightly expect the result of those sacrifices to be protected. And his immigration minister, Alex Hawke, said Djokovic's president presence in Australia might inspire an increase in anti-vaccination sentiment. Now, Gideon, I think anti-vaccination sentiment has been inspired of its own accord, don't you think? Yeah, and I have to add, you know, anti-vaccination sentiment, including, uh, I I think now we're actually seeing a problem in so far as people who uh, may have gotten it because they were coerced and regretted or have some question marks or, you know, find out that it wasn't all it was cracked up to be in terms of reducing transmissions. Those very same people are now actually maybe hesitant towards vaccinations, you know, for example, that I had as a kid, you know, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccination, things like that. So that's a side of it. But on Novak, look, I'm glad to see this reversed. Uh, I'm ama- you know, I'm not amazed, uh, I'm sorry, by how much the science has changed. I remember last year he had to be banned for three years. He was a danger to every you know, man, woman, a child of this country. We had to keep him out uh, using the same laws we used to keep out, you know, terrorists and people like that. Uh, now, of course, that ban has been reversed. Look, Fred, I remember when Novak Djokovic won his appeal the first time in the lower level of the federal court. Uh, I actually went along to celebrate the Melbourne Federal Court building uh, with all these wonderful, wonderful Serbian people who were there with flags. And one Serbian guy gave me his, his old, you know, antique hat from his army days and things like that. One fantastic people. Uh, I was glad to celebrate with the men. And in spirit today, I'm celebrating one of their countrymen being able to come back uh, to another great country, which is, of course, Australia. Uh, you know, I'm not a huge tennis fan, but I'll be barracking extra hard for Novak uh, the next Australian Open. Mate, I think I'd barrack harder for Djokovic than I would for the Diamonds netball team. But just staying with Djokovic, how has Australian opinion done a 180 in less than a year? How does that happen? Look, I think last time it was this, uh, I think Scott Morrison and the government played to, as you said, this idea, look, we've all had to get one. Why should uh, some foreign guy not have to get one? I think now people are a little bit uh, more sympathetic to the so-called anti-vax point of view. I think people now, in hindsight, have seen the complexities and the nuances with that whole debate. I think now uh, people are starting to realise that what happened, uh, you know, and I'm not making any pharmacological comment as usual about the vaccine. I'm That is not my area of expertise, but in terms of the public policy area of coercion, of withholding the right to participate in society. You know, there's still, I think to this day, you can't volunteer with the SES unless you're vaccinated. I mean, we're cutting off our nose to spite our face with this kind of stuff. So I think after a year of this debate simmering down, and the other thing, of course, is that uh, it was held out as a mechanism to end lockdowns, to get your freedom back. I would hope now people are thinking, uh, well, hang on, freedom is something that's inherently held by the individual. It is not something that the government gives and takes away based on good behaviour. Why should we have to jump through hoops to have our fundamental legal rights. I hope uh, that that has filtered down to Victorian people. And I think based on the results we're about to see uh, from the state election in Victoria in a few weeks, maybe it has filtered down. Yeah, I think we're halfway along the process of seeing a a widespread opinion change towards the people who imposed those lockdowns on us. But we'll wait for that to happen before we comment on it. 
Anyway, Victorian Premier Dan Andrews launched his election campaign on Sunday. Did you watch it? How did it go? No. <laughs> I, uh, look, I, I, I watch a lot of politics for a living. I'm not giving up my Sunday to watch Dan Andrews and one of his diatribes. I know I should have, but I got the gist of it. And look, you know, like every other Melbourneian, I was glued to Dan Andrews, smiling dull every day. It was that compulsory viewing to find out what we were allowed to do and what we weren't allowed to do. But I think that's feeding into the sentiment around this election. I think that uh, you know, if it's not showing up completely on polls and so so on, I'm, I'm detecting a current of people, even if they weren't anti-Dan at the time of lockdowns, even if they weren't Liberal supporters or anything like that, I think people have just had a gut pull of Dan Andrews. I think people might be thinking, oh, well, you know, enough of him, we've seen enough of him, time to give somebody else a go. It happens in politics. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if the campaign launched and rattled that well. Well, that's a very interesting comment because... It, it, it would seem to uh, be consistent with a quote that I read in the Weekend Australian from pollster Cos Samaras. His quote is, mm. the sting for Labor is that there are a lot of people in the electorate who don't want to talk about the pandemic, but they are carrying around the memories of it. Now, yeah. I think this suggests there is a, a latent resentment towards Dan Andrews, which is reflected in what you just said, but it's probably quite widespread, don't you think? I think it is. I think that we're going to see a real sleeper issue come out of this campaign. I think we're going to see very volatile swings in traditional Labor heartland, uh, which you know are dead red seats to be sure and very safe Labor seats, but could be won by independents. There are a number of outer suburban marginals that could be an upset on the night. Um, but I think that, you know, something very interesting, Fred, uh, is negative election ads during election campaigns because Negative ads don't actually, you know, according to pollsters and pundits and people like that, they don't change any minds really. But what they do do is they cement and confirm things that people already believe. So if you look at Labor's negative ads, they're running on Matthew Guy's, the cuts guy is going to cut funding to hospitals and, and whatever, whatever else. Uh, whereas the coalition negative ad campaign is remember this November. They have zeroed in on the fact that even though we would like to think that the corona business is behind us, that we would like to think that this won't happen again, spoiler alert, it will because you know, governments will always keep the powers that they've given themselves under dubious circumstances. History shows us that. But even after all of that, people do have a nagging resentment and that can be, uh, I think, teased out and used to uh, attack the Labor Party. And that's exactly what we're seeing. What a shame that such an easy election is going to be decided on negative campaigns. It should be the easiest election to win in Australian history. But anyway, look, the main issue in Victoria is, of course, energy generation. Uh, Dan Andrews has said he's going to bring back the SEC, which probably means a unionised workforce and widespread blackouts. But opposition leader Matthew yep. Guy, he's promised to turbocharge gas extraction. Do you think he's serious about it? Look, I think he is. I think, uh, look, I was as worried as the next red blooded right winger when he started coming out with, uh, you know, for example, a 2030 emissions target that was actually more ambitious than Anthony Albanese's. I think that was the wrong way to go. I can see the political logic in it, you know, having to go, uh, uh, campaign through the middle and win people over on climate change. It never works, by the way. Scott Morrison tried it, Malcolm Turnbull tried it, Zach Kirkham tried it, Matt Keane is trying it, uh, you know, by stealth in New South Wales. It never, ever, ever works. I think it is a positive sign for Matthew Guy that he's pivoted to a genuine gas policy. I think that this is a clearer sell. I don't think the Liberals win elections on climate. Nobody wins it on climate, frankly. Uh, but 
for Matthew Guy to zero in on the main problem with Victoria in terms of our energy grid, which is lack of supply, which is lack of reliable supply, and in particular, a lack of gas as a firming mechanism, because we, if we are going to go down this uh, road with experimental windmills and so on, we need to have backup capacity in the system. And as things currently stand, that can only be done by gas, which can spin up quickly and spin down quickly as the need arises. Uh, I think Victorians are, are still shell-shocked from their gas bills over winter. I think that this is a, an area that's ripe for the coalition. I just hope they aren't uh, getting into it too late. Good on you, Gideon. Always love getting your comments from Victoria. And we hope that Matthew Guy can struggle over the line next Saturday. Thanks for your time, Gideon. Thanks, my friend. That's Gideon Rosner of the Institute of Public Affairs in Melbourne. Well, nobody triggers wokeness more than the orange man himself, Donald Trump, who announced today that he would run again for the presidency in 2024. Here's what he said when he announced it. This is not a task for a politician or a conventional candidate. This is a task for a great movement that embodies the courage, confidence, and the spirit of the American people. This is a movement. This is not for any one individual. This is a job for tens of millions of proud people working together from all across the land and from all walks of life, young and old, black and white, Hispanic and Asian, many of whom we have brought together for the very, very first time. Well, not if we've got anything to do with it, said the New York Times. It responded with a piece headlined, Trump announces 2024 run, repeating lies and exaggerating record. The Times called the speech rambling and the announcement was, quote, motivated in part by a calculation that a formal candidacy may help shield him from multiple investigations into his attempts to cling to power after his 2020 defeat, which led to the deadly mob attack by his supporters on the Capitol on January 6, 2021. The Washington Post wagged its finger and scowled at Trump with similar disdain. You'd think they'd be celebrating. Trump is circulation gold for these citadels of sanctimony. He's so baked into the business model of the New York Times and the Washington Post that there are surely portraits of him, even if they're dartboards in all their newsrooms. Without Trump, half their reason for being disappears. But what they don't understand is what comedian Dave Chappelle explained so succinctly on Saturday Night Live on the weekend. And the reason he's loved is because people in Ohio have never seen somebody like him. He's what I call an honest liar. That first debate, that first debate, I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen a white male billionaire screaming at the top of his lungs. This whole system is rigged, he said. <laughs> and the moderator said, well, Mr. Trump, if in fact the system is rigged, as you suggest, what would be your evidence? You remember what he said, bro? He said, I know the system is rigged because I use it. I said, God damn. <laughs> And then Hillary Clinton tried to punch him in the taxes. She said, this man doesn't pay his taxes. He shot right back. That makes me smart. <laughs> <laughs> and then he said, if you want me to 
pay my taxes, then change the tax code. But I know you won't because your friends and your donors enjoy the same tax breaks that I do. And with that, my friends, a star was born. A star was born, all right. And the same voters who love him for it get fired up every time the leftist mainstream media try to vilify him. And every time the FBI or the Department of Justice try to incriminate him. As long as the relatively innocent Trump remains enemy number one to the media and the Washington establishment, while the clearly corrupt Bidens, Pelosi's and Clintons enjoy criminal immunity, the ordinary people of the United States will back their guy, Trump. The media can harp all they like, but they will never learn that they are only making Trump more likely to win. Well, there are two very predictable things about politics right now. Here's one of them. The Democrat Senate candidate for the American state of Nevada was always going to scrape over the line after the lights in some of that electorate's vote counting stations mysteriously malfunctioned in the middle of the night last Thursday. And here's the other one. The Labor Party of Australia was always going to introduce legislation bringing back the bad old days of excessive union power after not mentioning it as a policy during the federal election campaign in May. How is that legislation going now? Well, let's get in Stephen Senatiempo, the host of the Breakfast Talkback Show on Canberra's 2CC and one of the most common sense commentators in the country to find out. Stephen, welcome, welcome back to the show. G'day, Fred. Good to be back with you. Stephen, the government's legislation, among other things, this is the new industrial relations legislation, among other things, enables unions and the Fair Work Commission to force companies to be part of industry-wide wage deals, whether they want to or not. Now, the business, business community has reacted not very happily to this, but how is the legislation itself tracking through Parliament now? Well, it's, it's gone through the lower house, as you would expect. But um, I, I guess there's a certain irony that it's being held up in the Senate by David Pocock and Jackie Lambie, who um, have been a little bit, have shown a little bit of common sense on this. But I think Paul Kelly nailed it in The Australian last week. And he said this legislation fails the two fundamental tests that any legislation has to go through. Firstly, there's got, they've got no mandate for it, although they're claiming that they said, oh, well, we said before the election we'd try and increase wages. Uh, this won't do that, but they're trying to use that as cover. And the second thing is it's bad policy. There's about 300 pages of amendments they've already had to introduce only a week after they put this parliament, this bill forward. I mean, it's just extraordinary that you don't do your homework beforehand. And what it proves is that it's all well and good to snipe from the sidelines when you're in opposition. But when you go to an election with no plan and very, very little legislative agenda, you then find it very difficult to govern if you finally win the election. Now, they told us that everything was terrible and Scott Morrison was the worst prime minister ever. And don't get me wrong, he was, he was no champion by any stretch of the imagination. But once you get there, you've then got to hit the ground running and govern. Now, they've been allowed to get away with that because the unions and the public service and the media have basically given them cover. But they've hit their first hurdle domestically. And I think the best thing that can happen for Albo is that he gets another overseas trip because he seems to perform well <laughs> when he's not out of the country. Yeah, but he's spending when he's a lot back of here. Yeah, that's true. Well, just getting back to that legislation <laughs> before we move on to the style of government that we find ourselves under. 
Do you think they actually read this stuff? I mean, if they had to add 300 pages to the legislation, who's actually reading it? Anyone? Well, look, no, I think they are reading it, but I think the, the reality is this legislation was largely written by the unions and the governments realised, well, hang on a sec, we can't go holeless bolus back to the bad old days of the 1970s. And, and I've actually put this to a couple of Labor politicians and I said, well, hang on, this is like 1970s-style collective bargaining and their argument is, but, but it's not 1970 anymore. And my point is, exactly, it's not 1970 anymore. This is the point you guys are missing. Um, you know, there is not a single business group in the country that supports this legislation. And again, I put this to a couple of Labor politicians. They say, oh, no, well, we don't know that that's necessarily true. And I rattled off every business group I could think of that has opposed the legislation and said, who's left? And you get the, um, um, well, um, um, well, well, somebody. <laughs> yeah, there's someone. Yeah, it's, there's got to be someone. But it creates a situation where the, where the legislation is so complex that the only way to ensure that you're not prosecuted is to keep the unions happy. It's not, no, no one can actually comply to this le with this legislation because it's too complex anyway. So, so it just gives the Absolutely. unions too much power over corporations, doesn't it? It does, but you know, I mean, let's use the uh, the construction industry for instance. You know, large contractors will be able to manage this because they've always managed their relationships with the unions. It's the small subcontractors that are going to struggle with this. It's small businesses that get caught up in the net. I mean, this is like the drift net of, of uh, legislation. It catches everybody, even those that are not going to be able to deal with it. And if you're serious about increasing wages and increasing employment. Well, you don't do that by sending small businesses broke. Yeah, the only wages that are going to go up are lawyers dealing with industrial relations. Now, this is closely exactly. related to what Janet Albrechtson wrote in The Australian Today. She's found that Anthony Albanese didn't seek any legal advice before proposing, uh, pro bu sorry, before proposing an amendment to our constitution based on race. Of course, I'm referring to the voice to parliament. Now, this yep. is pretty amateur stuff, isn't it? Isn't it, Stephen? Well, it, it is. And, you know, when you're pandering to a particular, a very small minority within the uh, within the Australian community, and that is, and, when, and I'm not talking about the Indigenous community, I'm talking about the Indigenous activist community um, who have largely been driving this through that Uluru statement to the heart. Um, but it comes back to the same as the industrial in, in legislation. They've obviously done no homework whatsoever before putting this bill before Parliament, and that's why there's been so many amendments to it. it this is just par for the course. And again, it goes back to the fact that government is harder than it looks from opposition. Now, the, when the coalition came back to power after the Rudd-Gillard years, they hadn't been out in the wilderness for that long. The reality is that there is very little governmental experience in this Labor government. They've come in cold. They don't know what they're doing and they're trying to learn on the job. And unfortunately, we're the ones suffering for that. Yeah, well, I've got my own theory about that, actually, um, based on what a Liberal politician senator, in fact, uh, told me recently. And that is that for the coalition, it's actually easier for them to be in opposition because when they're in government, they are constantly dealing with the bureaucracy who all, as you know, because you live in Canberra, <laughs> lean to the left he said that 80% of dealings with departments, uh, department officials was confrontational. So I imagine it's the opposite for Labor, um, which is why they are, despite being relatively inexperienced and in, in office, they're so confident that they can do what they like because suddenly they're surrounded by bureaucrats who see politics the same way. Would you agree that that's yeah. a fair description? Yeah, that's probably right. 
But that's a double-edged sword, though, because I think that conf confrontation is what creates good policy. You actually have two different arguments combating each other and you've got to come to some sort of compromise. When everything goes through without any scrutiny, that's when you get sort of this little sort of legislation we're talking about that goes before the parliament. And then the wider community says, well, hang on a sec, what the hell's going on here? And the government, well, the bureaucrats told us it was fine. Well, okay, that's usually an indication that you're wrong to start with if you're following what the bureaucrats say. But I think you're right in the sense that that, that dynamic is very, very different. But I think that's why coalition governments tend to, on the whole, get it right, because they've got to go through that process of fighting with the bureaucracy to actually get their legislation uh, drafted, whereas the Labor Party is going through without any scrutiny whatsoever. Yeah, and it would explain why things are going south so quickly for the federal government now. Now, let's, let's uh, you mentioned Anthony Albanese going overseas again. It's, it's like he goes on holiday to come home these days. But anyway, he met <laughs> Chinese President Xi Jinping overnight. There's been a lot of gushing over this media, over this meeting in the media this morning. What did you think of it? Well, look, I, I guess you've got to give credit where credit's due because it's the first time that an Australian Prime Minister has met face-to-face -face with a, a Chinese leader in six years. So any kind of dialogue has got to be good. And if you keep those lines of diplomacy open, that can't be a bad thing. But what we're led to believe is that they discussed everything from human rights to this to that to the Ukraine war, but didn't actually talk about the elephant in the room, and that is the sanctions that China has imposed on Australia economically. And the thing that really struck me was in the lead up to this, Anthony Albanese met with the Chinese Premier, who I, from what I can imagine is the 2IC, uh, who said, look, you know what, we're prepared to meet you halfway. Well, hang on a sec, there's no halfway. China has been the 100% aggressor in this whole situation. So meeting us halfway means we've got to give more ground in order to get back to a relationship where China will start trading with us again. Uh, does no, nobody see the problem with this? Oh, well, absolutely. I mean, we're talking here about whether or not China admits that they actually created the coronavirus, aren't we? Well, largely that's right. And the whole, uh, the impetus for this whole uh, wolf warrior diplomacy was apparently us having the temerity to come out and say, well, hang on, there should be an investigation into how this virus started, whether or not it escaped from a lab, whether what China's responsibility is here. China says, well, how dare you throw rocks at us? We are now going to cut off all trade with Australia. Um, the opponents of the government say, well, we should have waited for somebody else to do it. We shouldn't have taken a leadership role here. But when it comes to climate change and all those kind of things, we need to be at the forefront. I mean, the, the hypocrisy of this is extraordinary. Absolutely. And and just to point out, I, I, I never, never miss an opportunity to point out the hypocrisy of the uh, solar panel uh, made in solar panels being made in China by Uyghur slaves yeah. being promoted by the left in Australia. That that's a sickening bit of hypocrisy, if you ask me. Now, the yeah. the meeting between um, Xi Jinping and U.S. President Joe Biden was slightly longer than the one with with Albo. What do you yes. think they talked about, mate? I well, I don't know that I, either of them probably know what they talked about. Uh, Xi Jinping because he was being led by an interpreter and Joe Biden because he probably wasn't sure where he was. <laughs> well, but do you think Xi Jinping is a little bit weakened, though? Yeah, I think so. If you look at the at the reality of it is, and this is the thing that Australia, the, the opportunity that Australia has missed, is that we actually have more economic power than we give ourselves credit for, given that China desperately needs our resources, whether it be iron ore or coal. Uh, they're having serious economic problems at home. So, yeah, it, G, there's no two ways that G is weakened here. Whether or not 
and you know, I, I relate him a little bit. I think he's a little bit smarter than Vladimir Putin. But there's a certain point where these political leaders find it very difficult to back down from their positions, and that's the difficulty here for China. Um, he's got problems at home that he's got to deal with, and and ultimately that is going to be what drives him, um, as it is with all politicians. All polit politics is local, and you know, most of what you do on the world stage is to appease your own voters, and, and I say voters in inverted commas in China, obviously, but you know, when there's a billion people, you still have to appease them. Well, speaking of local politics on the global stage, what did you think of COP27? I mean, the parking lot in the airport was pretty crowded for a start, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, I call it cop out 27. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's quite farcical, um, particularly given the, the criticism of Scott Morrison when he initially announced that he wasn't going to go to COP26. And then Albo says, well, I'm too busy to go to COP27. Um, the, the really scary thing is, is that we have actually sent Chris Bowen overseas to represent us outside of Australia. That is literally frightening to me. I mean, I remember when this bloke was a second-rate councillor or a third-rate councillor in Western Sydney. That, that's the only experience he had before going into federal politics. He has failed at every single portfolio that he's ever been involved with. And now we we're sending him overseas to represent us. I mean, goodness sake. Yeah, it is frightening, I've got to say. Well, there's, a, there's one other aspect of COP27, which didn't actually happen in Egypt. It happened two days before at Buckingham Palace in London. Now, you recall that when the former Prince of Wales, Charles, who is now king, uh, became mm -hmm. king uh, back in October, he, he announced that he would be uh, letting go of his political uh, objectives and little projects that he had. But it turns out he hasn't, Stephen. He got not only some international diplomats and, and uh, lobbyists into Buckingham Palace, but, pr but the Prime Minister of Britain also turned up, Rishi Sunak, for a, a side meeting about COP27 and, and uh, Charles's pet projects. Now, this has serious consequences for Australia, in my opinion, because he promised that he wouldn't be political as a king, and now he is. What's your opinion? Yeah, look, I don't know that uh, he's de absolutely being political here. I mean, monarchs have always expressed their opinions behind closed doors. And if, look, if he wanted to have a side word to Rishi Sunak and say, look, this is what I would like to see happen, as long as Rishi Sunak said, well, thank you very much for your opinion, your majesty, but uh, your government will make its own decisions uh, as per the constitution. I don't particularly see a problem with it. I, I think he has stepped back a little bit from some of the positions that he would have held. But, you know, I mean, you've got to remember this bloke came to the throne um, after 50 years of waiting. Now, that's a lot of personality and a lot of personal opinion to build up over time to then just step away from cold turkey. So, look, I'll give him a little bit of benefit of the doubt in these early stages. Uh, if it continues on, you know, 12 months down the track, well, then, yeah, we might have a problem on our hands. <laughs> Very well said, Stephen, and diplomatic too. Stephen Senatambo, thanks for your time. Thanks, Fred. See you next week. That's Canberra's 2CC Breakfast Talkback host, Stephen Senatambo. And just before I go, remember when New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern won re-election in October 2020? That was a very emphatic win. Of course, she had cashed in on the pandemic, where leaders sidelined political opponents and dominated all the airwaves and messaging. Opposition leaders all around the world couldn't get a word in at the time. Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk did the same thing. 
So here was Jacinda Ardern, or Saint Jacinda as they call her, winning over 49% of the primary vote. This gave Labor 64 seats and a rare outright majority in the parliament, while the National Party picked up only 35 seats. With a landslide victory like that, you'd think Saint Jacinda would be in power for the next decade at least. Well, not so much. The shine has worn off the new has worn off the New Zealand Prime Minister, and thank goodness for that. Her sanctimonious lectures and woke green left ideology have been excruciating to watch. New Zealanders have worked out that she knows nothing about economics, and in fact, the once strong New Zealand economy left by John Key and Bill English in 2017 is now in tatters. Trade unions have been bolstered under her premiership, and the housing shortage remains despite her overzealous promises. Who could forget Ardern's promise to build 100,000 affordable new homes in 10 years under the plan titled Kiwi Build. Two years later, the Kiwi Build policy is, was under review as only 258 houses had been built. That is a huge betrayal to New Zealanders who relied on her to fix the housing crisis as she had promised. What's worse is in 2019, she told farmers they had five years to reduce their carbon emissions before her government would introduce financial penalties. Does the Prime Minister not know that New Zealand's agriculture sector is a huge source of wealth for the country? Her ignorance has no limits. Fancy at a time of hyperinflation and global unrest, her government wages a war with farmers across the country and introduces unworkable regulations. Last month, St. Jacinda said this, quote, cutting emissions will help New Zealand farmers to not only be the best in the world, but the best for the world, gaining a price premium for climate-friendly agricultural products while also helping to boost export earnings. She went on, we're committed to building a system that works for farmers. We will continue to work in partnership to drive as much consensus as possible to ensure we have a system that lasts the distance. Well, excuse me, building a system that works for farmers? She's absolutely kidding. How is introducing heavy taxes on the agricultural sector, which by 2030 will mean an estimated 20% of sheep and beef farmers and 5% of dairy farmers will be forced out of business. How is that building a better system? That's called sending farmers broke. Agriculture is New Zealand's biggest industry, generating more than 70% of exports and about 12% of gross domestic product. All I can say is thank goodness, the latest Roy Morgan poll has Ardern's Labor neck and neck with the up and coming National Party. The opposition leader, Christopher Luxon, looks to be a fierce political opponent who can finally give St. Jacinda a run for her money at next year's election. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thanks for watching. I'll be back tomorrow at eight o'clock right here on ADH TV. Good night.